Welcome. Hey, this is Kevin Shinnick, writer of Star Wars Force Collector. I'm Kevin Scott, one of the story architects of Star Wars The High Republic. This is Dominic Pace, who plays Gekko the Bounty Hunter from The Mandalorian. Hi, I'm Claudia Gray. I write Star Wars books. And you're listening. And you are listening. And you are listening. To Star Wars Comics in Canon, the Force is strong with this one. Hello there and welcome to Star Wars Comics in Canon, your guide to the wider Star Wars canon through the comic book lens. And to take you on this journey, I'm your host, Mike Burton. And so brings episode 125. So my friends, this week I am tackling the second volume of the Han Solo and Chewbacca comics by Mark Guggenheim. This is issues 6-10 to and it completes this miniseries. If you haven't listened to my prior episode on this, go back and listen to episode 107 of Star Wars Comics and Canon that was released in September 2022, and also I would recommend checking out my Star Wars Revelations episode, which was episode 120, released in mid-February 2023. Now, if you haven't tuned in before, in brief, I go through the plot details of each of these comics in chronological order, and along the way I give you a bit more information on certain elements, including species and planets and events that reoccur and characters, those sorts of things. So this serves as a great way for you to have a better understanding of the Star Wars comics canon, while getting an understanding of the plot details and etc, and the wider canon in itself. But if you did want to pick up these comics by yourself, I do leave out certain bits and pieces that aren't integral to the story, just so you can still enjoy the comics if you decide to pick them up yourselves. But with that in mind, let's delve straight into things. So, Han Solo and Chewbacca, the whole series was written by Mark Guggenheim, who also wrote the Star Wars Revelations comics and some of the Age of comics as well. The artwork was done by David Messina on issues 6, 8, 9 and 10, and Paul Fry did the art for issues 6 and 7. Alex Sinclair was the colour artist for these issues, and issue number 6 was released September 28th, 2022, issue 10 was released March 1st, 2023, and the trade paperback collection is due to be released June 6th, 2023. These comics are set between 8 years before the Battle of Yavin and 2 years before the Battle of Yavin, so we haven't got explicit confirmation in that 6 year period when it is, but it's after Solo and before A New Hope. Now, the show is not a review show, but I do have some thoughts on these comics, shall we put it, but I'll save that towards the end of give you my actual thoughts on these. As I said, normally I just give you like a brief of like how I felt about the comics, if they did specifically wow me or didn't necessarily wow me. But uh, yeah, I have thoughts. I have some thoughts on this, but I won't say what they are until we get right to the very end. But I will put the timestamp in the show notes if you want to just skip to that part and hear what I think about these comics. But uh, without further ado, here is The Crawl for Volume 2 of Han Solo and Chewbacca. It is a dark time for Chewbacca the Wookiee. His ship, the Millennium Falcon, is missing along with the urn containing the remains of Crestal Dinarin, which he and his partner, Han Solo, have been contracted to obtain for Jabba the Hutt. As Kel Tanner and her crew search for the Wayward Falcon and the urn, Han Solo is believed dead, after being fatally wounded by the scoundrel Greedo. Meanwhile, Chewbacca must fight to survive on the prison planet of Goldahar. So issue 6 starts in that prison where Chewbacca is fighting a Chagrian. The Chagrian rams his horns through Chewie's abdomen and then a girl called Phaedra distracts this Chagrian and then Chewie manages to knock him out. 
Now, a Chagrian is a blue-skinned humanoid. They have horns on the top of their head, as well as head tentacles that generally go over their shoulders. You do see them a fair amount in the Star Wars galaxy. The most famous one is probably Maz Armeda. He is in the prequels, and he is one of Palpatine's sort of right-hand men. He does have a fair amount of dialogue in the Clone Wars and a bit of dialogue in the prequel trilogy. He's normally in the Senate, really, but you'd have definitely seen a Chagrian. So after Chewie KOs this Chagrian, Maz Kanata, Chewie, and Fedra all start to talk. Now, Fedra is a humanoid girl. I can't find out exactly what species she is. She seems to have quite light skin, maybe bluish, and then sort of face markings or tattoos. And then her eyes are black, but the iris is yellow. And then her pupil is black as well. And then Mars Kanata here, this isn't where Mars and Chewie meet, or at least if it is, they do not make that obvious at all. It is very heavily insinuated here and then in future parts of these comics that Mars, Han, and Chewie already knew each other. So while that's going on, you've got a few people working together. You've got Toonga and Corbus working with Kel Tanner, Greedo, Akko, and Uris. So Toonga, you know her from the Bounty Hunters comics, and this is set before those by quite a few years. Corbus is the gentleman in the prior volume of Han Solo and Chewbacca who was posing to be Han Solo's dad. Greedo is the Rodian that Han shoots in the cantina in A New Hope. Cal Tanner seems to be a new character, so does Akko, and then Uris Bynar is actually a bounty hunter who is killed by Nakano Lash in the first volume of the Bounty Hunters comics. Uris species is a Thispassian, basically a serpent-bodied being with like a kind of humanoid top half, and they're often quite hairy and bearded, and there is a Jedi Master called Oppo Rancisis, who is in the High Republic a little bit, but you can see him as a Jedi Council member in the prequels, I think, in Attack of the Clones and in The Phantom Menace, but I can't recall if he's in Revenge of the Sith, but he doesn't have any speaking lines, he's just kind of there with a big beard. But back to the story, you've got Toonga and Corbus are posing as Imperial officers at an impound facility. They're looking for the Millennium Falcon. So Kel and Co. then hide on their ship, leave it just floating in space nearby, and some Imperials then just take it and then impound it. And obviously it gets impounded right near the Millennium Falcon. Greedo then causes a scene and a distraction for some Imperial officers nearby that helps Toonga and Corbus use a nearby computer terminal and then find exactly where the Millennium Falcon is. They communicate to Kel and Co., and then they all go and find it. So Kel and Co are hiding in their ship because there's like smuggler compartments not dissimilar to the Millennium Falcon, and then once the imps have got off board and etc, they then get out, and then Toonga and Corbus and Greedo then head over to that shipyard. Back to the prison, a lot of prisoners are now trying to fight Chewbacca, maybe trying to kill him after he beat this large set Chagrian man. They seem to view him as maybe a trophy or just kind of prove their worth, but no one is winning against Chewbacca. While that's happening, Mars Kanata and Phaedra work out a plan to try and escape. Chewie then goes to a tribunal, and he's got 10 arrest warrants for him, as well as loads of Imperial warrants as well, including charges for murder and theft and all kinds of stuff. So he gets given a 25% life sentence. So for Wookiees, that is approximately 100 years. So back to Kaltana. She and Uris are working to try and release the Millennium Falcon because it is stuck down with a docking clamp. They do eventually manage to get it off, and then they get on board the ship and fly away in the Falcon. Akko is flying Keltana's ship, and both of them fly away. There are some TIE fighters that are pursuing, but both ships separate and flee, and then meet at this rendezvous and seem to be completely fine. Although, they can't find the urn on their ship. This is the urn that kind of started off these whole chain of events, that Jabba the Hutt offered Han Solo and Chewbacca a million credits to get the urn that has the ashes of one of his biggest rivals in there. So back to the prison... Chewbacca seems to be healed from the horn stab wound through his abdomen from some Bacta, and then Mars tells him the plan to escape. He must, in air quotes, die. 
Elsewhere in the prison, you've got Ponda Baba and Cornelius Everson, who are evading execution by killing some guards that came in to take them down. Now, you may not recognise the names Cornelius Everson and Ponda Baba, but you will have definitely seen them because they are in the iconic scene in A New Hope when Cornelius Everson taps Luke when they're in the cantina and says, He doesn't like you. I don't like you, and then they kind of start to push Luke around a little bit, and then Obi-Wan gets his lightsaber out and slices off Ponda Baba's arm. Ponda Baba is an Aqualish, whereas Cornelius Everson is a human, but he's got quite a disfigured face. Now, they feature in the Dr. Afro comics quite a lot, which I have tackled on this show, and Cornelius Everson especially is sadistic. He's horrendous. He started off as, like, a plastic surgeon, and then he started experimenting on people when they went under and, like, disfiguring their face and bodies and things just for strange experiments, and then he's killed loads and loads of people, and, yeah, he's not a great bloke. Now, interestingly, their names were actually put in the Legends book Tales from Mos Eisley Cantina in 1995. And originally, from A New Hope, the way he was referred to was Rufo, and I believe that Pondababa was called, like, Walrus Face or something along those lines. And what has actually happened is, what they did in Legends, and they've continued it in canon, is that Rufo is actually one of Cornelius Everson's many alter egos and things, and he actually uses it in one of the Afro comics as well. Then the final panels of issue 6 shows that on an outer rim planet, it's called Escalan, but there doesn't seem to be any other information on it, and the alien species there are not dissimilar to Nautilans, which are like Kit Fisto's species, so they've got like tentacles and things, and green generally. They look a little bit like that, but they don't have the head tentacles. In actual fact, they look most like the being in A Shape of Water, the Gilda Toro film, and also Abe Sapien from the Hellboy comics as well as the movies. Basically kind of like beings like that. They find Han Solo, who's been like drifted ashore in water. He's obviously got a hole in his chest and was found near death, but he gets treated, and then seemingly after a week, he starts to wake up. And he has somehow grown basically a full beard in a week, even though we've never really seen Han Solo with any stubble or any real facial hair, to my recollection. But yeah, somehow in a week, without shaving, with a hole in his chest, and being healed by some healing stuff, he seems to have grown basically a full beard, which I found to be quite odd. But that's the end of issue 6, so we move on to issue number 7. So we get a flashback to Han getting shot when Greedo shot him. He obviously collapses to the floor after being shot, and then Greedo wants to finish the job. He goes to, but then Keltana stops him. She says, I'm not a murderer, the only reason you shot me is because there wasn't any other choice. So instead of doing anything, they decide to just dump him on this random world somewhere, which is the world Escalan that I mentioned from the previous issue. Then he is found by these aliens or these people, he gets healed, and then he's drinking at a bar and things, he gets told to get out, but no one speaks basic it seems, so they just kind of point and yell at him. And then as he's leaving, there's a news report on, but the news report, instead of being in the language of the species of that planet, it's in basic even though it's unsure if the species can actually understand basic. I think it's somewhat insinuated. But on this newscast, for some reason, it's saying that there are three people condemned on the prison of Gulhadar, which is a human, an Aqualish, and a Wookiee. And it shows the pictures, and obviously the Wookiee is Chewbacca. So Han Solo sees that, and then knows that's where Chewbacca is. It's a interesting plot device. I think it's a bit too convenient for me, even in the realm of Star Wars. I don't think I've ever really heard a news report of just saying that people in prison are like condemned like i don't really get it because chewy doesn't have a death sentence whereas everzan and pondababa do but they're in the same speech i don't fully understand that element of things but you know convenient convenient han solo happens to be in the right place at the right time here's exactly where chewbacca is and obviously goes off to find him so back in the prison phaedra gives chewy some pills that she made from cleaning chemicals and things and he's meant to take them and then he'll seem like he's dead and then he'll wake up a little bit later which is all part of the plan. So that happens, he takes the pills, he collapses to the floor, and then one of the guards pronounces him dead. And now it's time for Mars's part of the plan. 
So back to Han, he manages to find an alien who can speak basic, and then they give him passage off-world on this merchant ship. It's just the one merchant on the ship who can't speak basic, but they give him passage and he asks why, and they say, we just help strangers, that's our way. Then, when they're away from the planet, Han holds a blaster to the back of this merchant's head. Back to the prison. You've got Evazan and Pondababa are strapped to chairs, and they're about to be executed via gas. The gas itself is dioxys, which is actually a gas seen in The Phantom Menace used by the Trade Federation to try and kill Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon. It's also in the Clone Wars episode The Box, which is season 4 episode 17, when Obi-Wan goes undercover as a bounty hunter and then does this challenge thing with Cad Bane put together by like Dooku and things. It's a pretty cool episode, I do quite enjoy it, but dioxys gas, it's not really in many other places in the canon, it's like a little bit here and there, but that's the gas that is being used to try and kill Evazan and Pondababa. Miles Kanata manages to get into the room where Evazan and Pondababa are by climbing through what seems to be the air vents and things, and she asks for their help in exchange for their freedom. While that's going on, Phaedra is using some cleaning stuff, mops and etc, and goes to an area where she shouldn't be in, knocks out a couple of guards, and then takes their uniforms. Then an alarm sounds and notes that a gas leak has been detected. So as these alarms are sounding, personnel are told to evacuate. So Mars leaves Evazan and Pondababa behind and asks them not to kill for a while, and they say, no promises, and scurry off. Meanwhile, Chewbacca awakens in what seems to be the morgue, there's no one around, and Phaedra goes to get him, he seems to be relatively okay, and they head to the flight deck. They were aiming to get a ship, but it flies away, and then they have to try and make other plans while the guards come out onto the flight deck and start to shoot at them. But Phaedra is pushing this cleaning cart thing, and Mars is hiding inside of it. She shoots the three guards that are shooting at them, and then they feel a bit stuck, because there's not really any ships nearby that they have access to, they don't have access codes either, so they're kind of wondering how they're going to fly away. And then Han shows up in that merchant ship, saves them, and then says he'll drop Maz back to Takodana. He thanks the alien for the ship, and heads to Tatooine. Then in Tatooine, in the famous Mos Eisley Cantina, famous only for us, I don't think it's very famous across the world, but it seems to be popping up in almost all Star Wars content, which is quite interesting. It's in Mandalorian, obviously in New Hope, lots of different places. But in that cantina, Greedo is having a drink, and Chewie goes up to him and grabs him by the throat, and Han asks, where is the Falcon? So that's where issue 7 ends, and I will confirm a little bit more information about that cantina. It is called the Moz Eisley Cantina, also known as Chalman's Spaceport Cantina. Chalman is a Wookiee who owns it, and it was previously owned by other people, but then Chalman manages to get it back, and it seems to be who it's owned by for the most part. And I think at the end of this, the insinuation is that Han gives the ship back to that merchant from that random planet, and just kind of lets them go away with it, thinking that Greedo is so surely going to be on Tatooine that they just abandon any chance of being able to get off the planet without the ship which i found a bit odd but anyway into issue eight so on tatooine han and chewie are roughing up greedo a bit like they throw him out of the cantina and stuff and greedo does confirm that he has the millennium falcon he won in a sabuck game against corbus because they all kind of had a game to see who would win the falcon after they couldn't find the urn and greedo notes that the urn seems to have been taken by the imperials it seems that a moth on coruscant has got it so they ko greedo and then go and get the millennium falcon why they didn't kill Greedo there, I know why, because plot-wise you had to have Greedo in the scene from A New Hope, but why they didn't kill Greedo when he literally shot Han in the chest and let him for dead, I do not know. Now Phaedra is with Han Solo and Chewbacca at this point, and she has got a plan on Coruscant. They note that the urn is on Coruscant in a specific office with codes that change daily. There are death troopers inside, which are the black armoured stormtroopers that were made famous from Rogue One and then started popping up in elsewhere. They seem to be like elite stormtroopers, kind of bodyguards. Uh, Vader has some, Orson Krennic has some, Tarkin has some, etc. And her plan is for them to be sanitation workers and they can get access to the office through the sewers. And Phaedra will get the moth out with a distraction. 
Phaedra also manages to get the schematics for the sewers and the moths building as well, and she also notes that there are no background checks on sewer workers. She confirms that she had two different friends who owed her favours, one of which who got them the jobs as the sanitation workers re- like immediately without any questions asked, and the other gave her the schematics for the moths building and the sewer system and things. Meanwhile, you've got Corbus, who is running away from the Marshal. The Marshal is Buck Vankto. He is from the first volume of these comics and things, and he wears like a golden mask. There's not really much to say about him. Corbus manages to bargain for his own arrest for Han Solo's location. So, back to Han and Chewie. So they're in the sewers, and Phaedra is posing as a protocol droid. She seems to have got one randomly before going into the office, hollows it out, and then wears the outer shell casing as like a suit thing. So she's like inside a protocol droid. So from the outside, it doesn't look like a human in a protocol droid suit. It looks like a protocol droid. And she poses as if she's a droid with a message from the Emperor. Now, the moth in question is... Grand Moff Tarkin. So Phaedra posing as this protocol droid talks to Tarkin and says that Palpatine sent a message via her, as in this droid, saying that he believes that Mars Armada is planning to kill him. Tarkin is a little bit suspicious of this, but does go along with it and then goes to the Emperor's throne room to talk to him about it personally. He also takes a couple of death troopers with him, but there's still a fair few in the room. So Han and Chewie come out, assumedly through the toilet, and they shoot all the death troopers immediately, and then alarms start to sound. Han goes to get the urn from one of the back rooms in the office, and this is actually one of the first times we actually get to see Tarkin's office. His first name is Will Huff as well, nice bit of trivia there. But it's quite cool seeing it, there's like a big skull, like an animal skull in like a tube thing. There seems to be Sith Wayseekers, or maybe normal Wayseekers, like on a shelf somewhere. There's a couple of other interesting things, uh, but nothing else to note that I specifically recognised. So Han gets this urn, he comes out and there's some stormtroopers at the door, so Phaedra shoots the window and tells them to jump. They do so and they land on a train that's going past. A stormtrooper fires at them, hits Chewie in the shoulder, and he falls off the train and just starts to fall, and that's where the comic ends. So move on to the penultimate comic, issue number 9. So Chewie is falling, but he manages to kind of bounce off slash grab onto a passing two-person speeder car. There's an Imperial officer inside there, which he just pushes out, and then he gets in and then flies up and lands on the train again. The train turns a hard corner, and Han drops the urn. It opens up, and there's no ashes in there, but there's some sort of sphere instead. They manage to get off the train and get back to the Millennium Falcon without any further hassle and have a discussion on what to do with this thing. Phaedra and Chewie don't want to give it up to Jabba because they feel like it could be something really bad considering Jabba was willing to pay a million credits for it. Han is apprehensive, obviously he wants to have the million credits or the cut of a million credits that they would each get, but as we know Han does actually have a conscience even though he likes to pretend he doesn't, so he decides when we figure out what this thing is and he knows someone who could help. So they go to Narshadar, also known as the Smuggler's Moon, and as they land the Falcon, a Grand spots them, and then tells Kel Tanner where Han is. Now Grand Species is basically a three-eyed goat humanoid. You see them in the prequels, they were first in Return of the Jedi, and one of the most notable ones is there's a couple of senators that you see in the Clone Wars, as well as, I think, Attack of the Clones and maybe Revenge of the Sith, but also there is a pod racer called Mar Honic in The Phantom Menace. When Kel Tanner knows where Han Solo is, she tells Corbus, and then Corbus tells Buck Vankto. I can't tell if they're working with Buck Vankto now, or if Corbus has like hacked Kel Tanner's comms. I think she is telling Corbus, but I think because Corbus is in custody with Buck Vankto, that Buck Vankto just knows by proxy, I think. So Han notes that the person who knows something about the sphere is Sava Corin Purs, and they go and speak to her about the sphere. 
Now, Corin Purs is a female Ugnaught, but Sava means like kind of professor in the Star Wars realm. And Corin Purs, we actually saw her in the Lando comics written by Charles Saul, which I tackled in episode 18 of Star Wars Comics in Canon. Now, the Lando comics are set after these events, so go check that out if you want to find out what else happens to Corin Purs outside of this little appearance in this comic. But female Ugnaught, very intelligent, knows a lot about artifacts and old stuff, and has a cybernetic eye, and she can speak full basic. So while that's going on, Buck, Vankto, and Corbus get to Narshadar. They find the Millennium Falcon, and Corbus decides to wait on the Millennium Falcon, and Buck Vankto gives him a blaster, but says, you know, don't run. If you do, I'll just find you and kill you. And then Buck Vankto goes off to try and find Han somewhere in Narshadar. While that's happening, Kel, Tanner, and Co. are also looking for Han on Narshadar, and then Kel notes that they're probably at Corin Perz's place, because that's the first person who springs to mind when looking at old artifacts and things. Again, I'm not fully sure how. Kel knows that Han Solo's got this sphere thing and what he's actually looking for and why or anything like that. I don't really understand how she knows that. And I still am not fully sure if Kel Tanner was working with Corbus and Buck Vankto or knows that they were there, but they're all on the planet. Well, technically it's a moon, so they're all on the moon of Narshadar. So Corin Purs is speaking to Han, Chewie, and Phaedra and notes that the orb sphere thing they have is a neural core, which is nearly 200 years old, and it was owned by Ajax Sigma. So it's basically the droid's brain. Now, Ajax Sigma, as I said earlier, you should check out the Star Wars Revelations comic because it's just a one shot and it tells you basically all this information as well as some other cool stuff in itself. But I tackled that episode 120 of Star Wars Comics and Canon. But Ajax Sigma is going to be the next big bad in the next crossover event for these comics of this era before Return of the Jedi. And Ajax Sigma is this droid who was like not constrained by their own programming and they wanted other droids to be free. There was like a big war that went on on Klingson's moon. Thousands of people were killed. In fact, I think the whole population was destroyed. And Ajax Sigma killed personally thousands of people. And they are even a more capable fighter than any assassin droid. There's a nice little panel where Han thinks of L337 when Corrin first mentions there's a droid who wanted other droids to be free. So that's a nice little nod. I think L337 is such a cool character and is quite underused. Before Corrin Purse can explain anything further about Ajax Sigma, there's some shots that get fired and it shows that Kel, Tanner and co enter and just start firing. Han grabs the core from Corrin and then runs away, as do Chewie and Phaedra. Corrin Purse seems to be unharmed in this encounter. So they run through like a back door and things, and then Buck Vankto is there. And Chewie decides to fight him because I think Buck Vankto like shot Chewie a few issues ago in like volume one. And so Han and Phaedra prepare to leave while Chewie is dealing with the marshal, because Han notes that Chewie can handle himself. So Han and Phaedra get to the Millennium Falcon, and Corbus is there on the Millennium Falcon, pointing a blaster at them and says he wants to know what was in the urn. So that's where issue number nine ends. So you move on to the final issue, issue number 10. So we get like a flash forward and Jabba is given the urn with ashes inside by Greedo. And Jabba looks somewhat concerned, but Greedo is like, well, it's got the ashes in like you wanted. And Jabba gives Greedo, I think, 80,000 credits, noting that the million credits he was never going to pay Han anyway. And then Greedo seems to accept that and leaves. And then it says earlier. So it's like a flashback, but technically it's continuing the story, which we've been following for the last like nine issues. So on the Millennium Falcon, Han somehow now has Corbus in a headlock after the last thing we saw was Corbus aiming a blaster at both Han and Phaedra and somehow he's just managed to not shoot Han or Phaedra or do anything really and Han's got him in a headlock. Don't know how, but that's how this comic's kind of starting. Millennium Falcon gets shot at by Akko in Keltana's ship, so things start to rock and while they're trying to like fight each other and things, things keep moving about and they're like stumbling and whatnot. So Han tells Phaedra to go and fly the ship. Han is then shot by Corbus's training orb that's with him. 
So the training orb, as I call it, is actually a Marksman H training remote. So you'd have seen that in A New Hope. It's when Obi-Wan is like somewhat training Luke on the Millennium Falcon and says to use the force, use the lightsaber, and Luke like closes his eyes or wears the helmet visor down and is trying to block against this orb that's shooting little stun bolts at Luke and Luke is like trying to deflect them with the force. I think it's insinuating that that orb is the same orb from A New Hope, and then we see it again in The Force Awakens, but again, there's no explicit confirmation of that. I assumed that Obi-Wan had that orb, but I may be misremembering. I think maybe Obi-Wan just kind of rooted around in the Falcon and found that thing. I'm not really sure. So while there's all this fighting going on on the Millennium Falcon, it goes to Chewie, who is still tussling with Buck Vankto. Kel and Co are also there as well, and then they decide to try and shoot both Buck Vankto and also Chewie. Chewie manages to grab Toonga and throws Toonga into Buck. Again, I don't know how Chewie didn't get shot, and I think that vaguely answers that Kel Tanner wasn't working with Buck Vankto, but I don't know if Kel and Co knew that Buck Vankto was there. I'm not overly sure. Back on the Falcon, Han and Corbus are still tussling, and apologies I swapped between Han and Han, but the Millennium Falcon is still being shot even though it is now flying away, and Phaedra comments that she's not really flown many ships before and she hasn't got any experience flying one in a dogfight. Buck manages to grab Toonga, hold her by the neck, and then has a gun to her head. So, Kel, Tana, and Co. drop their weapons, and then Buck takes them onto his ship, while Chewie is kind of slinked off somewhere, and then once Buck and stuff get onto Buck's ship, Chewie then sneaks up behind them and puts a gun to the back of Buck Fangto's head. Back on the Millennium Falcon, Han manages to knock out Corbus, and then the orb seems like it's going to shoot him, and then Han just says to the orb, don't shoot me or I'll scrap you, and then the orb just doesn't shoot him, and then that's the end of that altercation. So Han then takes over the controls from Phaedra, but the Millennium Falcon is damaged, so it needs to crash land on some other planet. Or I think it might be another planet, it's not overly clear, it might still be a Narshadar, but it's now seemingly a different biome, it's like in a forest somewhere, and so the Falcon crash lands. Buck Vankto tracks the Millennium Falcon's trajectory, so Chewie is there and says to follow it. Han and Phaedra are okay in the Millennium Falcon, they're a little bit shaken up, but then they spot that Corbus is running away. So Han goes after Corbus, and Corbus is like mocking Han, saying that he trusted him too much, and he says that Han just let Corbus into his life when he just thought he was his dad and stuff, and is you know, gloating and things, and Corbus is holding the neural core of Ajax Sigma. While Corbus is mocking Han, he is slowly reaching for a blade he has behind him, but Han notices this and then shoots him in the shoulder, and Corbus like falls from great height on this like tree branch thing that they're on, and just falls. We don't really see what happens to Corbus. And Han makes a comment saying, you think I trust too easily like other father figures have. Obviously referencing Tobias Beckett in Solo A Star Wars Story. So Han returns to the ship and Akko has got a gun at Phaedra who is standing outside of the Millennium Falcon. Chewie is then there with Buck Vankto, Toonga and Uris Bynar and it is noted that Chewie struck a deal with Buck. So Buck gets Keltana arrested and then takes her ship and then the ship has got notes of lots of different places like safe houses and those sorts of things and it's unclear if the safe houses have got loads of money and resources or if there's like people there that he can take warrants out on but he just lets everyone else go. Han then leaves Toonga and the crew behind as a payback for what they just abandoned him on that random planet a couple of issues ago. So Han and Chewie then decide to bury Ajax Sigma's Neurocore about 15 centimeters underground. Like, it's almost like a dog dug a small hole, they just plonk it in there and then just push some dirt over it and just leave it in this random place. Han then offers to take Phaedra home or to another job that they've got of trying to steal some money from someone who banks somewhere, gives it a smirk, and that's the end of that element of the story. So it says the end, then dot dot dot, and then you turn a couple of pages at the end of the issue and it is like advertising this Ajax Sigma crossover thing that's going to be happening. And then the last sort of page, almost like a post credit scene, 
shows that Greedo goes to the cantina and confirms to Corbus that Jabba the Hutt took the urn with the ashes in. And Corbus is happy about that, and then that is where the comic ends. So that is the end of the comic, friends. Just before I give you my full thoughts on this matter, you may have been able to tell by my tone in this episode that I wasn't overly impressed by this comic, but the Ajax Sigma stuff, so there's the Dark Droids crossover that's coming out, so obviously there's War of the Bounty Hunters, which I've done all of, there's Crimson Rain that I've done all of, there's Hidden Empire, which I have done most of. I think I've done three of the Hidden Empire crossovers, so I've still got four and five to go. I did finish reading it a couple weeks back. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good ending. And so the next big crossover event is going to be Dark Droids. Uh, it was announced at Star Wars Celebration, it was hinted at in Star Wars Revelations and obviously in this issue it's going to be about Ajax Sigma he's going to somehow come back and cause some issues now I think he's going to be a cool villain I think it's going to be quite fun but I probably would have preferred it to be sort of post episode 6 content maybe like after the Aftermath trilogy or something like that but I suspect they didn't really want to touch that area because you've got the Aftermath books you've also got the Star Wars Battlefront 2 campaign that's set a little bit after episode 6 and a few other pieces of content around that time so I suspect this is the only place they could really kind of put this story in i suppose but it does kind of lend itself for my criticism of these crossovers which i think they're fine to read but they're cramming a lot of stuff into the year between empire strikes back and return of the jedi whereas between a new hope and empire strikes back there was quite a lot but that's like three years so when they crammed quite a bit into there it kind of to a degree made sense but that was i think 75 issues of the main run of star wars and i think at the moment we're like issue 35 around that kind of mark so in my mind it's been almost a year and a half if we take comics in that sort of deadline chronological sense which i suppose they're not because sometimes five comics and it only occurs in like a day so you know maybe that's just me but i just feel like they're cramming quite a lot in and as much as i enjoy some of the crossover episodes i do find that it does kind of weaken the individual issues a lot like I really like the Afra stuff. I think it's really, really interesting and all that's going on with that at the moment with the Spark Eternal and that sort of stuff. But like with all these comics that just keep crossing over into these big event things, I want like a bit of a break in a sense. I, I would rather, contrary to what I've just said about timelines and stuff, I'd rather have like quite a few issues, like 10, 15, maybe even 20 issues where each, you know, Bounty Hunters, Darth Vader, all those things kind of get to do their own thing for a while before delving into yet another crossover event. And obviously the issue with the crossover events are we know the majority of what's going to happen. Like Charles Saul is writing it and I've got nothing against Charles Saul's writing, but like Hidden Empire was all about Kira trying to take down the Sith. And although it was quite a cool ride and there's quite a few cool things in there, the Ascendant technology, the Archivist, lots of cool things, you know she doesn't succeed because the Emperor and Darth Vader are fine in Return of the Jedi. So it's just this little thing where my issue with some of these comics, when you've got these legacy characters, is we know all of their fates. And so, you know, I'll be tackling Dark Droids. I think it'd be quite cool. It's quite a cool concept. I'm going to be more interested by how it affects, like, Dr. Aphra and the Bounty Hunters crew, because none of the Bounty Hunters crew... Well, actually, there have been... The Bounty Hunters crew have actually been confirmed to survive past Episode 6, because there was... I can't remember if... I think it was Star Wars number 25 where there were short stories in there and one of them I think was about the Bounty Hunters crew and they're pretty much all alive. So that kind of spoiled Bounty Hunters because it's taken a lot of the dramatic tension away from there. And then Dr. Aphra may die. I hope she doesn't. I hope she gets like her own series and stuff after episode six. I think that'd be really cool if it was like not just a comic series, like an animated series. I think that would be so cool, even live action. But I don't know if that's a pipe dream or what. Um, but yeah, we've got a crossover coming up. So before we get into the lasting waffle, I just want to give my opinion on this comic. 
So normally I don't really give opinions on comics because generally I enjoy them all slightly different ways. Sometimes I go, oh, that comic was amazing. Or yeah, that didn't really land fully for me, but it was all right. Uh, I really, really didn't like this comic. Um, I thought the first volume was all right. I thought the Han Solo dad stuff was quite cool. And then they just completely undid it. And I was like, oh, well, that was kind of pointless. But this is without a doubt, my least favourite arc of comics. I mean, some of my least favourite comics in the canon have been the Age of stuff, because they're just one-shots, and it's like a one-shot with Kenobi in the Clone Wars. Like, there's not really any character depth you can add to those kind of things. But they're one-shots, so what can you do? This is like 10 issues. It could have easily been done in like three. It felt like the ending is just a build-up to this Dark Droids thing, which I felt was completely unnecessary. And there are so many plot holes in this, it was becoming really difficult to read. Like, as you could tell with some of these things, you've got this 14... Like, they say that Phaedra's like 14 at certain points, it's like a 14 year old girl who somehow has connections to someone who has access to Grand Moff Tarkin's schematics of his building who is willing to throw away and potentially put their entire life at risk and their career and everything and betraying Tarkin for this 14 year old girl or you think she's 14 she's very young at least and it's like how do you have a friend who has access to that? Where did you find them? Because surely someone in that position would have had to have been working for the Empire for quite a while and especially someone so close to Grand Moff Tarkin. So I don't understand how she got that. I don't understand how they got into like the sanitation thing. She's like, oh, I knew someone, I know someone who owes me a favor in the Imperial Security Bureau. And I'm like, you are a criminal who's been put into prison for all these crazy things like fraud and all this other stuff. She listed it all off in um, issue six. I just, I didn't go into, but she's been done for basically everything. And it's like, how on earth did she do that? You know, it's, it's, I know heists are often quite, you know, luck and all those things, but I was like, right one thing i really don't like is how almost every episode every issue of this ended up with like a cliffhanger but there's no dramatic tension of any kind because when han solo gets shot in the chest you know he's fine because he he's like one of the main characters in the original trilogy so there's no tension there when chewie falls off that train thing in the issue seven and it ends with him falling it's like well i know he's going to survive because again he's a legacy character he lives through episode nine so You've got these new characters, but none of them are put into any positions of threat. Phaedra, if she was in issue, I'd be like, okay, maybe that makes a bit more sense. But she's just completely fine by the end. All of the Eckert's bad people, apart from Kel Tanner, who didn't really seem that bad, they're all fine. So I don't know if there's going to be like more Han Solo and Chewbacca comics. So those are little issues I had. But one of my big issues is that Han and Chewie decide to not sell this neural core thing to Jabba because they don't want to go into the wrong hands. But they just bury it on a random planet, like genuinely 30 centimeters max underground. They don't like dig it properly in the ground. They just put it like, it almost looks like it still has a bump. And I'm just like, why didn't you destroy it? If you knew it was this big evil thing, why have you just left it basically in the middle of the woods somewhere? If I found like a gun or like a rocket launcher, you know, something or some sort of hacking device that could take down an entire government, I'm not just going to leave it in the woods somewhere. I'm either going to hand it into someone or with Han Solo's position, more likely destroy it. They have the Millennium Falcon. What I don't get, and this is a very quick, easy fix I thought of when I finished this issue, why didn't they try shooting at it and then maybe it was made of Beskar or something crazy, some sort of metal that was resistant to damage, and they're like, oh, we can't destroy it, maybe we'll throw it into the sun, and then the Empire is like chasing them or something and they just don't have time to throw it into a sun somewhere, and so they just kind of have to throw it in space eject it in space and then slowly just floats in space for ages and then it gets into the hands of whoever it gets their hands on it in the dark droid stuff i was just like it was such a weak ending and i feel so dissatisfied because i've read 10 issues of this it has added nothing to han solo or chewbacca at all 
We don't know how him and Miles Kanata or Chewie met or anything like that. There's none, no weight to that line of, you know, Miles saying that Chewie's like her boyfriend in The Force Awakens. None of that. They're just, oh yeah, Miles is here and now she's out. Do we know how she got into the prison? No. Do we know anything else about that? No, she's just out and free. Who's Phaedra? You don't know. What species is she? You don't know. She's seemingly doing more stuff with Han and Chewie, so I, I guess we're going to get more from her in the future. Then also they just escape robbing Grand Moff Tarkin ridiculously easy by jumping on a train somewhere. And then what? No one gets in a TIE fight and tries to follow them or a speeder or anything. They just let them go. So I'm just like, there's no dramatic tension there's nothing that's been added. There's no real interesting lore that's happened. Why they didn't continue with the Han Solo family stuff, I don't know. I was actually quite invested in Han Solo and his dad. And he was like, oh yeah, it's not a thing. And then Han Solo getting shot in the chest, point blank by a blaster, with a smoking hole in his chest. And then they decide to not eject his body into space, not to actually just kill him and finish the job, but to take the time to fly to this random, basically uncharted world, which would have taken minimum 10 minutes probably a few hours with just Han Solo dying on the floor and they just dump him in some water somewhere he miraculously heals basically so he is perfectly okay and has no sign of any injury while just what a week of healing even if he was in Bacta, which he wasn't even if it was like this magic healing stuff he's just what completely unscathed he'd been shot in the chest by a blaster which would probably liquidize some of his organs you know considering people get shot around the stomach and chest region and die immediately but Han Solo with no armor nothing to protect him and of any kind and potentially hours with this wound gets dumped on a random planet and is fine in a week and I'm just like none of this makes any sense it doesn't seem like any of this has actually been thought out at all. I don't know if it was rushed or they need to stretch loads of stuff out. Buck Vankto, his entire thing has been trying to get Han Solo. And then at the end, he's like, oh, yeah, well, um, you know, I've got Keltana. I've got her and I'll arrest her. And then everyone else is just going to be let off free. Even though he mentioned earlier on in one of the comics that the other members of the crew have almost certainly got warrants out on them if he checked. But he doesn't mention checking for them. And he just flies off with the ship. And it's like, but... I didn't think he was money-driven because earlier on, I'm pretty certain in Volume 1, there was a point where someone tries to bribe him and he says no. So I'm like, so Buck Vankto as this villain marshal person who is vaguely interesting at times is completely boring and has the arc makes no sense to any elements of the character. Nothing is added to Han Solo. Nothing is added to Chewbacca or Mars Kanata. The prison scene felt completely redundant and pointless. And then the whole build-up to this Ajax Sigma stuff, A... You literally get told all the information that Corin Pierce tells Han Solo in the Star Wars Revelations comic. And also, we already knew that Han Solo buried the Ajax core, or someone did. I'm pretty certain it's heavily insinuated as Han if we don't actually see it. That we already knew that Ajax Sigma's memory core thing was in this random place. So they released Star Wars Revelations like several months before the finale of this come out, which spoils this ending. But the ending doesn't make any sense anyway, because why did Han and Chewie not try and destroy the thing? But we already knew it anyway, and we didn't even learn any new information about Ajax Sigma, because the Eye of the Webbish Bog in Star Wars Revelations told Darth Vader about it all, and obviously we as the audience find out the information. So it's the first time I've actually read a comic, and I went on Twitter and I was just like, did anyone like this? <laughs> like, I don't understand. And loads of people went, yeah, we tried reading it and just kind of gave up around issue six or seven. And I'm like, this is the first canon comic that I'm genuinely like, I don't regret picking it up, but I wouldn't have picked this up anyway if I wasn't doing the podcast. But it was so hard to read. It was so hard to get through. And just every issue, things just don't make any sense. Like I mentioned earlier, Han and the they had that merchant guy from that random planet and stuff. 
and they just got him to drop them off at Tatooine, somehow knowing that Greedo would be in this one bar, specifically, and that he definitely would know where the Falcon is, or have the Falcon on him, with no way to get off the planet if they were wrong. I don't understand. It just feels like none of this was thought out. And it's just quite frustrating because I'm obviously quite a, not quite a Star Wars apologist, but I, you know, defend Star Wars quite a lot and I love the Star Wars comics. But I feel like if any of the really toxic Legends fans who always, you know, say how much they hate the Disney canon, blah, blah, blah. I feel like if they read this, this would validate a lot of their opinions on the Disney canon because this is just not well written. And I'm sorry to Mark Guggenheim. You know, I know he does a lot of TV work and he's written a few other things that are quite good, but I thought this was really poorly written. It just doesn't make any sense. And there's just so many plot holes after like what? I've read these twice, you know, once just to read it for my own and then once to make these notes and stuff on it. And I'm just like, the more it goes on, I'm like, it feels so not thought out and it's just so frustrating. So sorry for being a bit negative, friends. I try and be as positive as I can with Star Wars, but in this scenario, I just don't know how I could have been. So this is the one comic I've said to people, don't, I would say, don't pick this up. Like I always want to support the creators. Maybe you will pick this up and you really enjoy it, but I don't know. It's just one of those things. But yeah, friends. Um, so what are we doing next week and stuff? Um, I think next week will be my review of Battle Scars, I think I said I'd do, and I'll be releasing the episode a bit earlier because I'll release it on May the 4th, and obviously uh, Jedi Survivor will have come out yesterday, and as of the time of this release, Jedi Survivor will have come out yesterday, so at the time of that, that's the book that's set between Fallen Order and Jedi Survivor. I did enjoy it, it was a cool book, so I'll be doing that and giving a general plot overview on that. Then the week after that, I'm going to delve into the High Republic comics, so I'll do the first volume of those for Phase 2, so that's going to be quite fun, and then I think the week after that, I will probably tackle either the first volume of the Yoda comics, or I will tackle the next batch of Hidden Empire. I'll probably do Hidden Empire, uh, and then I'll do, I don't know, Yoda or High Republic. I don't know. But it's going to be next week, Battle Scars book review. Week after that, High Republic. Then the week after that, probably Hidden Empire. And we'll kind of go from there. Um, you can find me on social media at Genuine Chit Chat on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. I've got everything in playlists there. You can subscribe to my Patreon for only £1 a month. And you get access to hours and hours of additional content. There's Star Wars Legends book reviews on there. Loads of other cool things too. And um, yeah, just uh, support me where you can. I really appreciate all of you listening. I'm sorry for the negativity at the end. Please, if you picked up this comic and read it, let me know what you thought. Um, maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe there's some plot holes that do make sense and I've just missed something. If there is, please tell me. I'd love to know. But just thank you for your support as always. I'll talk to you next week with the Battle Scars review. Make sure you check out the show notes for all other stuff that I've been up to and whatnot. And as always, may the force be with you. The intro for Star Wars Comics and Canon is arranged by myself, Mike Burton, and the backing music was made by Eric Matias of soundimage.org. You have just experienced host, creator, everything else of genuine chit-chat, and also the host and creator of Star Wars Comics and Canon, found on the Comics in Motion podcast, Mike Burton.